Would you turn to Mark 15? And we'll be reading from verse 6 to verse 15 this morning. And I title this message, My Perfect Substitution. My Perfect Substitution. And the Word of God reads in verse 6 of Mark 15. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them Instead, answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Christian religion can be summed up in two words. Perfect substitution. This is the heart of Christianity, the great exchange, where the sinless Son of God dies instead of, in place of, sinful men. We are convicted by God's law that we are constantly sinful. God, because of His perfect justice, He must declare us all guilty. All deserving hell. And yet God at the same time is compelled by his love to justify us. That is to say, to declare us legally upstanding. Lawfully free from judgment before his sight. And the greatest question is how can God be just and yet at the same time justifies guilty sinners who not only do evil, but have evil hearts, corrupt nature? How? Answer, substitutionary sacrifice. Where our loving Savior bears all our sins and we get to bear all His righteousness. He receives what we deserve and we receive what is rightfully His. This is the unfathomable mystery that we call the great exchange. How God treated Jesus as if He lived our lives so He could treat us as if we lived Jesus' life. All our evangelistic efforts point the thirsty sinners to drink from this fountain of truth. And yet for us as Christians, also all our benefits and privileges spring out of that same fountain. Whether redemption or adoption, whether salvation or reconciliation, all our rich blessings that we received are carried upon those shoulders of holy substitution. In other words, if you ask, how is it that God forgives sins? How does he justify sinners, adopt them? You will find the answer to all those how questions 
find their roots in the substitution of Christ Jesus. The punishment of sin is transferred from those who deserve it, but yet cannot bear it to Christ, who does not deserve it, yet was able to bear it. Blessed are those who come to Christ through faith, believing this great exchange applied to them. Blessed. Meaning, what a blessing when a man believes in his heart this truth. Why? Because whoever believes this truth, and so with his mouth, sings loudly. Jesus died for me. Jesus bled and was punished for me. In my place, on my behalf, this person is saved. Now, this narrative is the sixth trial, the final trial of Jesus. And in it, we we find a, a, a vivid picture of this glorious exchange where the innocent Jesus takes the place of a guilty man. Named Barabbas. And this is a clear illustration of what took place between Christ and every believer. And as we read this passage before us and begin to exposit this word of God before us this morning, we are called to be led to astonishment, to be in utter shock. And in our utter shock, We ought to be led to be grateful. And when our hearts are swelling up with gratitude, it must burst out and fill our mouth with thankfulness to our great and wonderful, awesome Savior. And we ought to sing from within our hearts, amazing love. How can it be that my King would die for me? Now, last passage, if you recall, we saw the fourth trial of Jesus, and it was the first Roman trial. There were first, the first three trials were Jewish, and the, and the fourth one was a Roman one, and it ended up with Pilate being amazed. And that was verse five. Now, in this white space between verse five and verse six, much happened, much took place. In this white space, Pilate sent Jesus to be tried before Herod. And this was the, the fifth Roman trial. And what happened in that fifth Roman trial? Well, all that Herod did was he demanded that Jesus to perform miracles um, just purely for sheer amusement, for entertainment. And Jesus was dead silent. And so... How Herod responded to this was just that he started mocking Jesus and basically was kind of saying to Jesus, well, if they claim that you're the king of the Jews, let us dress you up as though they are the king of the Jews. And he got a rope and put it around, around Jesus as a form of mocking. And then Herod did not find any fault in Christ, so he shipped him back to Pilate. And now we pick up the narrative from verse 6, which was now we come to the third and the final Roman trial. So six trials, three Jewish trials, three Roman trials. This is the third Roman and therefore the final trial where Jesus is now standing to be judged. Mark 15, verse 6, it says, Now at the feast he, used, he here, that's Pilate, used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. Now what does that mean? What's going on? Let's just give you just a quick background to um, understand uh, what is going on behind the scene at that time. Well, Pilate, as you're aware, if you recall from last week, we spoke about this, how he's very well known to be such a cruel and unjust governor. All his subjects hated him. 
They hated him. And Rome didn't like that very much because that's exactly how you get people to revolt and they turn against Rome. When people are fed up uh, with, their, with the brutality of their leaders, that's what people do. That's how people respond to brutality. They just revolt. And so Rome didn't like that. And for Pilate, it was his last straw. He better behave or else he would lose his job. So Pilate, being a self-seeker as he was, he was trying to be at his best behavior. And he kind of wanted to make sure that he doesn't push people over the edge and then cause a riot. So one way to win uh, the favor of people and to show them that he's not that kind of a bad governor is that every Passover feast, as it says there, he promised the Jews that he would release back to them a, a prisoner, uh, any prisoner that they would have chosen. And what are the options at that time? Who were the prisoners? What's on the menu on the day when Jesus was crucified? In verse 7, it says, The man named Barabbas. What do we know about this man? Well, first, this name, Barabbas, it means son of the father. Son of the father. Bar, it means son. Uh, like how we've got uh, Simon Bar Jonah. That means Simon, the son of Jonah. So Bar here means son and Abbas, that's where, if you recall, Paul in a couple of occasions said, Abba, father. Abba means father. So Barabbas means son of the father. I've read and researched and I've found that some old manuscripts actually attach the word Jesus. In fact, in, in a sense saying that his actual name was Jesus Barabbas, Jesus, the son of the father. But you know, I'm not going to make a, a, a judgment call whether it, it is um, part of the original manuscript or not, but that was the case in many manuscripts. So at the Passover feast, there were two options. In one hand, you have Jesus, the Son of God, the Father. And on the other hand, you've got Barabbas, who's also called Son of the Father. This was the only similarity between the two candidates that we had at that time. In terms of differences, of course, they're infinitely different from each other. What else do we know about Barabbas? <clears throat> well, the passage continues on and it says, Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists. He was a rebel, an enemy of the state. One who plans and plots to revolt against the governing authority. And if you could, could pay attention, he wasn't just a one-man show. It says here, imprisoned with the insurrectionists. Meaning Barabbas was part of um, a terrorist group, if you like, like Hezbollah or Hamas. You know, a freedom fighter group that... Uh, was established to liberate um, Israel from the tyranny of Rome. Now, how did Barabbas try to liberate the Jews? How did he do that? Continue on and it says, who had committed murder in the insurrection. Murder. Now, the Gospel of Luke and also uh, Peter, um, one of his preaching uh, sermons in Acts 3.14 they both affirm that he was a murderer. So it's not just that the Romans judged um, Barabbas of being a murderer. It is God that judged him to be a murderer. So how did Barabbas plan to revolt? Well, not by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, certainly not by meekness and humility. How? By use of power and violence, by bloodshed and self-reliance in guerrilla warfare, 
back in those days, Barabbas would have been like all other insurrectionists. He would have um, carried with him a small dagger, you know, a small sharp knife, and he would have hidden it uh, tucked into, into his garment, and he would go to marketplaces and mix with the crowd. And once he gets very, very close to his victims in that kind of subtle way, he pulls out this knife and drives it deep into his enemy and then goes back and blends with the crowd like, um, like a silent assassin, unnoticed by everyone. Nobody could tell who was it that committed the murder. What else do we know about Barabbas? Well, in John 18, verse 40, it tells us that Barabbas was a, was a robber. He was a thief, a crook, an outlaw who was supporting his uh, crimes by robbing men. Matthew 27, verse 16, tells us he was a notorious prisoner. Everybody knew Barabbas. He was well known to everyone for his wicked crimes. That's what notorious means. So if, if you just take a couple of steps back and assess Barabbas from a bird's eye view, we know from the scripture so many times that God promised Israel that if they would humble themselves and seek his face, that God will drive their enemies away. But Barabbas never believed this. He never believed in messianic redemption. And he was not interested in a coming Messiah to save them. You know what he believed in? He believed in self-redemption in in his power his muscle tissues when they are large enough he can conquer the world he can get what he wanted and what did this lead him to to be a rebel a murderer a notorious criminal, a thief. Well, that was Barabbas. And then the narrative now continues and it puts a spotlight on a kind of different group, and that's the crowd now. And we see now um, it says that the crowd went up and began asking him, that's Pilate, to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Well, since Pilate promised that uh, he would release a prisoner every Passover feast, well, a crowd went up to Pilate to see whom they would choose for him to release. Again, what are the two options? One option is either Jesus, this harmless, gentle, meek son of God, and the other option is Barabbas, this violent, cunning terrorist. One who ruled by love and light, and the other ruled by death and, and darkness. So to Pilate now, as an outsider, it was not a brainer. Surely the crowd admires Jesus. Surely they will choose him any time over Barabbas. And he's probably thankful that they actually came to him because the fact that they're going to come and he's going to request and then they're going to uh, put the request and surely they're going to choose Jesus, then he would release Jesus to them and therefore the religious leaders cannot put a blame on, on uh, Pilate that he released Jesus. It's the crowd that wanted him to be released. So he was kind of glad. And so... You can just imagine while Jesus is standing there on that public platform with a purple royal rope on his back. Majestic silence, but with um, tied hands and bruised, disfigured face. And Pilate points to Jesus and he says in verse 9, Pilate answered them saying, 
Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? The king of the Jews. This was not the first or last time that Pilate um, calls Jesus the king of the Jews. And if you read the passage carefully, you'd find that it was actually trying. It was a sinister kind of term to tease the religious leaders. He kind of wanted to annoy them. Why? Because since they, they claimed that somehow they got offended because Jesus called himself somehow, he's a king. And that's why they, they wanted him to die, because how dare he would call himself king and Caesar is our king. But Pilate knew better. They, he knew why they wanted to deliver him. And it wasn't because of um, Jesus claiming to be a king. It says in verse 10, For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of what? Envy. So it wasn't because um, the religious leaders uh, were so loyal to Rome. It wasn't that they were so devoted to Caesar that they delivered Jesus to die. No. It was more sinister than that. They handed him over because of envy. What is envy? It's this hot displeasure when somebody gets something that you don't want him to get. And and for the religious leaders, they envied Jesus for many reasons. Jesus was a, a much better teacher than they could ever be. And he could relate far more intimately to common man than they could ever do. And he was gaining greater and greater popularity and fame, and they are becoming less and less noticed. And they're fading in the background. Jesus proclaimed truth unchallenged. While they, when they stood against Jesus, if you recall, that they're, they're confused. They don't know how to respond back to Jesus. And so little by little, even before their eyes and before the uh, crowd at Jerusalem, Jesus was more and more seen that he's such a gifted, powerful preacher. And all that they had <clears throat> was just their office. That's all they had. So they hated him. They were full of envy. And their envy drove them to plot the murderer, the murder against the innocent son of God. For Pilate, Pilate wasn't born yesterday, figuratively speaking, of course. He knew what was going on. He wasn't that dumb. He knew that Jesus was framed and he knew that these religious leaders were power hungry and they would have done anything to get on top. So much so that in verse 11 now, it says, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. So those envious leaders, they moved throughout the the multitude of people that worked up the, the crowd against Jesus. Come on, people, look at look at Jesus. He's weak. He's passive. Look at him. If he can't defend himself, how in the world will he be able to defend our country? Is this the kind of pathetic Messiah that you want to have? <clears throat> And Jesus standing there, and they would say, you can't even kill a fly. Mm. What about Barabbas? He's a murderer. To to murder, to, to rob, to be notorious, Barabbas must have been strong. He must have been fast. And if he saw an enemy approaching, he wouldn't think twice. In a heartbeat, he would just break his neck if he could. 
And the Jews at that time, that was such a materialistic people. What drove them to make any kind of decision was health, wealth, and fame. That was in their agenda. That was the highest priority that they had at that time. Don't, don't be deceived by the relig- religious activities and the rituals. Forgiveness of sin, being right with God was at the bottom of the ladder. So to them, yeah, Jesus was really clever in the way he spoke, kind of getting more and more famous. But Barabbas, Barabbas is our hero. And he was the kind of savior that we're looking for. And so in verse 12, answering again, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? It's interesting, don't you think? What, what shall you do with Jesus? I mean, Pilate, you're the judge, not the crowd. In fact, if you look at verse 14, <clears throat> just quickly, and we'll look at it later. He says, halfway in the, in the middle, it says, why? What evil has he done? It's a rhetorical question implying he didn't do any evil. So if you're the judge and you see no evidence that warrants capital punishment, well, then justice should compel you not to execute an innocent man. But we need to understand something crucial here. No matter the audience, no matter the character in this narrative, justice was not a a commodity of a high value. It was not that important. The religious leaders were motivated by envy. The crowd, they were motivated by political freedom and materialism. Pilate was motivated by pleasing the majority. But none was motivated by justice. All were self-seekers. What shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? What shall I do with Jesus? I don't know. Maybe set him free? Maybe... Embrace him, worship him, love him, follow him, live for him. Don't punish him. Verse 13, they shouted back, crucify him. In Matthew, it says, they all shouted crucify him, all of them. So while, and now, While Pilate was holding the court and he's there hearing the crowd and trying to engage with them, seeing, hoping that he may release Jesus, he gets gets interrupted. This alarming text by his missus. In uh, Matthew 27, verse 19, it says, While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. She suffered greatly in a dream. It wasn't just a dream. It looks like more of a nightmare. And it seems like Mrs. Pontus was into mysticism. Surely she knew much about Jesus, must have spoken together about it. And she was um, influenced by her dream. At any case, she wanted her husband to make sure that he would judge fairly. So for Pilate, now the pressure is building up. It was getting intensified by the the minute. And then so in verse 14, Pilate is hoping to reason with the crowd. And he said to them, why? 
What evil has he done? You know, many times Pilate tried to release Jesus. And to, to be exact, when, when, when you go through this narrative, you would actually, from all the other Gospels and join them together, you would find that Pilate attempted 10 times to release Jesus. And he failed in all of them. Now, I found some to be interesting, so I just want to share them with you. Uh, five. I'll share with you five. In Luke 23, verse 14, it says, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. Luke 23, verse 22, it says, I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Did you pay attention to this? I found in him no guilt. And so what what am I going to do? I'm going to punish him. You know, it's just pretty lousy judge, right? How about this one? This one is in John 19, verse 6, it says, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. That's not how judging works. All right? You don't say to people, well, since I don't see any problem, you crucify him. It doesn't make sense. And Matthew 27, verse 24, it says, He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. So he tried to release Jesus so many times. And the more he tried to release Jesus, pay attention to what it says now in the Gospel of Mark. We'll go back to the Gospel of Mark. It says, They shouted all the more, crucify him. They didn't want justice. They just wanted blood, right? <clears throat> there was no mercy in their cry. Only viciousness, venom. You see, the crowd could have said at that time, well, if you think that Jesus is innocent, why don't you free him? And we get Barabbas as well, right? They could have said that. Two better than one. The more the merrier. But no, it wasn't just about releasing Barabbas. No, they wanted to nail Jesus to the cross. Now, why was it that they wanted to nail Jesus? So far, we understand why they wanted Barabbas. That was a kind of Messiah they wanted. Why did they want Jesus to be nailed? Perhaps when they looked at Jesus and found this broken, humble, peaceful man. It was an offense to them. It was appalling. Maybe the influence of these religious leaders was very powerful. Perhaps they were under such a strong spell by Satan himself. Or it could be the three of the, the combination of the three of them. We don't know, but <clears throat> they were so angry, bitter, and, and they were so full of hatred towards Jesus that in Matthew 27, verse 25, they said this. <clears throat> all the people said, all, pay attention to all. They said this, his blood shall be on us. And on our children. Wow. I mean, what kind of sickening responses was this? We'll we'll take the blame. We'll take the blame. Let our hands and the hands of our children be stained with Jesus' blood. Just kill him for us. Wow. Why so much hatred? And yet... On the other hand, oh, the meekness of Jesus. Oh, the meekness of Christ. Because don't forget that he was and is the son of God. Jesus could have flicked his fingers and, and uh, clicked his fingers and, and, and he would have been able to wipe them off the planet. But the fact that Jesus at this point 
still accepted this outrageous cry when he could have called for legions of angels to destroy them? It just goes to show how gentle, how meek Jesus really is. In the meanwhile, the pressure on Pilate was swelling. It's now overwhelming. It's kind of being blackmailed by the sheer force of the multitudes. And if a, a riot breaks out, if people begin to revolt, his job is on the line. So he thinks, well, what should I do? <clears throat> so in verse 15, it says, wishing to satisfy the crowd. To satisfy his position, to sorry, to save his position, he must please the majority. That's how he functioned. Well, how do you please the crowd? It says Pilate released Barabbas for them. Pilate released Barabbas. And here's where we come to the great exchange. Because if you go back. 2,000 years ago. And you are in this prison cell where Barabbas was held captive. Pilate sent the guards to this prison cell. And Barabbas had no idea what was happening outside. He was still in prison. He didn't hear the crowd. He didn't know that argument that they had with Pilate. And there in his prison cell, he kind of hears or perhaps sees um, the guards approaching, opening that doors uh, in that, of that cell, and he knew that his time was up. It was time for him to pay for all his crimes that he committed. There were shackles on his hands and feet and he's about to be dragged out to be flogged and crucified and to be made a public spectacle for for everyone to see and to know that Rome is in charge he knew at that time that he couldn't plead his innocence he knew he was guilty as charged he was a rebel and enemy of the state And if you get closer and closer to Barabbas uh, during that time, you would know that as little by little, um, this reality of execution is settling in into his mind. Surely his strength would slowly give way. His pulse rate would be getting faster. He'd be thinking, oh no, my end has come. His heart would sink to his feet. But to his shocking surprise, he hears the guards say, loosen his shackles, set him free. What? What do you mean? <clears throat> set me free? How come? He would have been confused. What's going on? Well, you're free to go. What? Why? Well, Jesus took your place. So we read in the rest of the verse, it says, After having Jesus scourged, Pilate handed him over to be crucified, to be scourged. A prisoner would have to be bound to a post and being whipped with um, uh, leather stripes. And at the end of the leather stripes, they would tie a donkey bone or a piece of metal. And uh, when um, once these bones make contact with the skin, they become like claws and they dig into the flesh. And uh, when a soldier uh, pulls back, pulls out these um, uh, leather stripes, it would rip out muscle tissues, veins 
are cut open, leaving internal organs exposed. It was such a, a gruesome way of torture. It says he handed him over to be crucified. But Jesus would die instead of Barabbas. But what? What's going on? Surely sooner or later, Barabbas would have wandered. Well, why? What crime did Jesus commit? Well, nothing really. Nothing was held against Jesus. What? What do you mean? Only thugs and riffraff kind of criminals like me will get crucified. Well, Jesus took your place. He carried your cross. So what do we have here? The insurrectionist, the murderer was set free. On what basis? On the basis that the peaceful life giver would be crucified on his behalf. And we don't know what happened to Barabbas after this. Did he repent and believe? Did he become a follower of Jesus? The Bible is silent about it. But what a vivid illustration of that perfect exchange that took place for every believer. Barabbas is the only human that could claim Jesus took my physical place, carried my physical cross. But everyone who comes to Jesus by faith can say, Jesus took my spiritual place. I am Barabbas. It's me. I am an insurrectionist against God. Every believer can say, I was born a rebel. I am the one who revolted against the supreme court of God. When I defied his rightful rule over my life. And thus I'm guilty of high treason against his majesty. Yes, I am Barabbas. What about murder? He was a murderer. Every believer in Jesus can say, Oh, how many times have I murdered people, even the closest people to me in my heart? In fact, I've broken all of God's commandments. I was shackled with sin and my heart was inclined to every kind of evil. Every kind of evil is recorded against me. It should have been me, the one who was accused of blasphemy. Because that's exactly my crime before the judgment seat of God. If there was anyone that should have been tried without mercy, it should have been me, not Jesus. I deserve the whole world to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. The head that was bruised and beaten up, it should have been my head. The body that was scorched and torn, it should have been my own. But just like for Barabbas, Jesus took my place without even me asking him for it. And he has become my perfect substitute. In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus is our perfect substitute. Every believer can say, Jesus was scourged for me, so I would be healed by him. He was condemned for me, so I would be forgiven in him. His hands were tied so my heart would be set free to worship him. 
His beautiful face was disfigured so God's image that was ruining me can be restored. Jesus accepted to be mocked and reviled for me. Why? So I would be blessed by him. He willingly died the most painful, disgraceful death for me. Why? So he might grant me eternal life with him. Simply put, Jesus died for me so I would have life in him. No longer do we have to fear death or God's wrath. Jesus covered our unrighteousness by his righteousness. And his good deeds, we hide in his good deeds. And so the wrath of God will never be able to find us. Guilt and shame is of the past for Christians. When the world pours down a drain millions of dollars to see psychologists in order to deal with guilt and shame, Christ, who's our perfect substitute, eradicated all our guilt when he bore it on the cross. Now, if you ask Jesus, why me? Why did you die for me? The only answer that would thunder out of the throne room of God, because I love you. And if we ask him the same question even million times more, the answer that will echo through eternity, because I love you. What a gracious Savior we have. Do we know of any loving Savior like our Savior? Is he not worthy of all honor, exaltation, and worship? So how do we apply this? How do we apply this in our lives? Brothers, if Jesus did not hold back but gave us all he had, is it too little to give him all we have? If by this perfect substitution, he fills our heart with gratitude, shouldn't our will be consecrated to him, him alone, yielding our lives to his will, to his desire? If Jesus died for us willingly, brothers, then we must live for him freely. And cheerfully. And we must let his love for us burn any passion in our flesh that will be contrary to his will. Let our breath we take, every breath we take. We say with the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who what? Loved me and gave up himself for me. He died for all. That those who live may no longer live for themselves may no longer live for their work, may no longer live for their family. But for him who for their sake died and rose again. If you're an unbeliever this morning and you heard this message, this perfect substitution, let me tell you, some struggle Some unbelievers struggle and say, faith, what does that mean? What does it mean to have faith in Christ? It's very simple now that you've learned about perfect substitution, his great exchange. 
Because what faith basically is, is to acknowledge Christ as your substitute. Faith comes to Christ. Faith leans on Christ. Faith recognizes that Christ died on the cross on your behalf. For you, he died. Do you believe this? Do you believe Jesus died for you? Not just merely died. Not just died for Christians. Do you believe he died for you? That's the kind of faith that saves. I pray that all of us, everyone who heard this message this morning, would decide once and for all that I'm not going to give 90% to this wonderful, loving Savior of my life and in 10% to worldly desires. But even everything that we have, 100% of our lives, we live for Him. And those family of ours, we thank God for them. And we say, you know what? God placed me in His family to be a means by which those members of my family would worship Christ. So I want to encourage you all to give Christ 100% because that's what he deserves. In fact, he deserves much more than that. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we see in this narrative such resemblance to what we are and who we are in Barabbas. We could easily wipe out this name Barabbas and put in it our names. And as much as we don't really know what happened at the end with Barabbas and how he responded, Lord God, would you, by the power of your Spirit, Lead us to respond biblically, properly. That Jesus would have all what he is worth of us. In Jesus' name, amen.